Have you ever heard somebody say that there's two types of people? It's a phrase that we hear a lot, usually with things that are pretty superficial, though. You know, somebody will say there's two types of people. Uh, Some popular examples right now, there's a big debate over whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza. Some people will say there's two types of people, those who will eat pineapple on pizza, those who will not. I personally love pineapple on pizza. If that bothers you, I do apologize, but I cannot be moved from that position. (laughs) There's a couple of famous examples of people saying there's two types of people. Uh, Some of my favorite, one from Robert Frost. He said, there are two types of people, those who are willing to work and those who are willing to let them work. Mark Twain once wrote, there are two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to accomplish things. Frederick L. Collins said, there are two types of people, I like this one, those who walk into a room and say, there you are, and those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And we like these, and they're smart and they're funny, but I think most of us recognize that those, for the most part, or overgeneralizations, right? There, is, there are some people who walk into a room and don't say anything, and you barely even know they're there, and they don't acknowledge you, and you struggle to acknowledge them, and maybe they're just in the corner. There are people who don't work, and they don't let others get any work done either, right? So we know that these are generalizations, but there is actually two types of people in the eyes of God. If you look in Psalm 1, I hope you're there if you're not already there. And here we know that this is true because it's what God says, and it's not just an overgeneralization. God is describing two very distinct types of people. You have the blessed man, and it's not just a man, it could be a woman too. You have the blessed individual, the righteous individual, and then you have the person who is wicked, the person who rejects God, and the person who is not blessed because of how he lives in relation to God. Psalm 1 informs us how to be the type of person that is blessed and what the results of that type of life are. One of the foundations of Hebrew poetry, which is what the book of Psalms is, is this sort of parallelism where you have two things put together that either are repetitive or they contrast. And here in Psalm 1, you have this contrast, which the crux of it is in verse 4. The whole first three verses is referring to the righteous person, the blessed person. In verse 4, the psalmist switches gears to talk about the wicked person. And in verse 6, we see the result of both lifestyles. So in the first place in the psalm, we'll see the psalmist describe the righteous person by what they do. And then before he describes what they're like. Notice what the righteous person or the blessed man is like. Blessed is the man who walks not, or sorry, what he does, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So you see the psalmist describes some things that a blessed person or a righteous person does not do first. And a righteous person, a blessed person, does not join in the activities of sinners. And you see this kind of progression He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Then he stands not in the way of the sinners. And then he sits not in the way of scoffers. It's like you're walking by and then you stop. And then you sit down to rest. And you're joining people with their sin. And this doesn't mean that righteous people today, for us today, it doesn't mean we can't have any friends who aren't Christians. 
It doesn't mean we can't be close to people who uh, aren't Christians, but it does mean we have to be very careful that we're influencing them and not the other way around. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I think all of us, we've seen that. If not in our own lives, in the lives of those we love and we care about. And so we can befriend people who aren't Christians, of course, and we should and try to help them. But if it gets to the point where we're joining in with them instead of the other way around, we have to make sure we're very careful. And if we can't be a good influence around our friends who aren't Christians, maybe we need to reconsider who we spend our time with. But notice the blessed man, the righteous man, he's not getting swept up in the action and the actions of sinners. Instead, he does something else. His mind, his desires, his actions are somewhere else. Look at verse 2. And you have that contrast there, that conjunction. But instead of hanging out with sinners and engaging in their actions, instead his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. The righteous person does not need to be coaxed or convinced into reading God's word. Notice that. His delight is in the word of God. You don't have to beg him or bribe him to get into God's word. He wants to do it. He does it willingly, and he does it passionately. And the result is, because he delights in God's word, he doesn't go along with sinners and their sinful actions. A righteous person finds joy and sustenance in the scriptures. This is a theme throughout the book of Psalms. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm, it's really just a poem about the benefits of God's word and being a person who reads God's word and being a person who lives according to God's word. And in Psalm 119, I think it's interesting that you find the psalmist describing that he loves God's word more than things that we usually consider necessities. In Psalm 119, verse 62, the psalmist says, He arises at midnight to praise God because of his word. The psalmist, the righteous person, loves God's word more than he loves sleep. In Psalm 119, verse 72, the psalmist says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The righteous person loves God's word more than wealth. And then in Psalm 119, verse 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The psalmist loves God's word more than food. And you put those together, you get the picture of somebody who is more encouraged by, more engaged in God's word, and more they find God's word more important to them than even the physical things of sleep, wealth, Food. It's like Jesus, right, who said you should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when Satan was trying to tempt him with that physical desire of eating, Jesus said, Satan, I have more important things to do. I have a sustenance that doesn't come from here. I feast on the word of God. And then notice the righteous live according to God's word. It's not just that they desire it. It's not just that the blessed man's a good student of the Bible. It's not just that he reads whenever he can and he does all of these reading plans and he completes them and he's always reading and he's memorizing. It's not just that. He lives according 
to what he reads. He lives according to what he studies. The righteous person does not just enjoy God's word, they allow it to dictate their lives. And one does not need to be a scribe or a preacher or have a preacher's office to meditate on God's word day and night. Really what this is saying is that every decision you make ought to be filtered through God's word and decided by God's word. Look at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. And this is Joshua, this transition in the leadership between Moses and Joshua. And you can imagine from Joshua, he would feel like he's got some pretty big shoes to fill. Moses, the guy who liberate, helped liberate us from the promised land, the guy from Egypt, the guy who led us through the Red Sea, the guy who's our number one chosen leader, handpicked by God to lead his people to the promised land, has been replaced. How could Joshua be successful? God tells him how he could be successful. Verse 8, God tells Joshua, This book of the law, God's word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful, notice this, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. If we want a blessed path, if we want a prosperous way in our dealings, if we want to truly be a person growing closer to God, We must not only delight in God's word and go to it often. We must not only meditate on it as often as we can, but we need to live according to it. We need to put those things into practice. And that's what the blessed man does. And I know that we're busy. I know that there's a lot of things we need to do. There's a lot of things we need to get done, and we need to have time to to rest, time for ourselves and for our family But we can chisel in the time to meditate on God's word day and night. One thing I've been trying to do and I think is helpful is, even if you feel like you don't have time to read God's word, just set 10 minutes aside and read the Sermon on the Mount. And I think if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you just set 10 minutes aside every day to read the Sermon on the Mount, I'd be willing to guarantee your life and your outlook would change. It would change the way you dealt with other people, It would change how often you prayed throughout the day, I think. I think it would change the way you looked to God throughout the day. Just three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it takes almost no time at all to read that, to meditate on that, to allow that to be in our head really can make a difference. Because the blessed man, the righteous man, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his word day and night. So that's what the righteous do. Next, notice what the righteous are like. The psalmist says, this is what this man does. This is what he's like. And he compares him, as we sang not too long ago, to a tree planted by streams of water. This righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So notice that righteous person, what is he like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. I don't know if you've ever planted a tree before. I know um, I've planted a couple trees, not just because of my name, um, just happenstance. My father owns some land in Colorado, and he wanted to plant some aspen trees. I don't know if you've ever seen these aspen trees, but they're beautiful. They've got the white bark and the nice green leaves, and in the fall, they totally change to orange and yellow and red, and they're bright and they're vibrant and they're beautiful. But one thing about aspen trees is they take a lot of water. My dad's land is actually in one of the driest counties of Colorado, right in the middle of the state. And he planted about four aspen trees 
And they've been there for about eight years now, and they've never gone over two feet tall. They're not dead, but I don't think they're alive, right? <laughs> they're just there, and they're just sitting there, and they're not growing, and they're not doing anything. It doesn't have the water it needs to grow. But if you're a tree planted by the streams of water, you've this steady influx of what you need to be able to grow. You have this reliable life force, and you don't need to fear the droughts because that stream is right there by your roots, and you're growing from it. And you think about this image, the psalmist is picturing somebody who has a certain level of stability. They know that uh, they know that they can grow and that they have this life force with them. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John 4:14 4, when he's with the woman at the well. And Jesus tells her, if you drink the water I have to give you, you'll never be thirsty. And of course, he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about that spiritual sustenance. And Jesus says there that his, those who follow him, those who go to him, they have within them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And because you're plugged into Jesus and you have that sustenance, you have that stream flowing by you, if you will, you are permanently spiritually sustained in Christ. And you have the refreshing presence of God's word and him and his word in, in you, causing you to grow and causing you to be uh, successful. It also yields its fruit in its season. This tree planted by these streams of waters, this stable tree, it's also dependable. It produces fruit when you'd expect it to produce fruit. It grows. It blesses others. When you think about a tree, when it produces fruit, it does that kind of in a way to uh, populate itself, but also it's a blessing to others, isn't it? When you go out and you can pick something from a fruit tree and eat it and it's delicious, it's a blessing to others. The righteous are like that. Not only do they grow as they're expected, but they bear fruit. Us as Christians, that has application, of course, not only in growth and maturity, but also in evangelism. We're expected to do that, to bear fruit, to bring others to the Lord, at least to try our very best. We're expected to be a blessing to others. And just like a tree that you can go to and you see that it's grown, seen that it's matured, see the fruit of its growth, you should be able to go to a Christian and see the same thing. I'm reminded of the parable Jesus gave in Luke 13, 6 through 9, of the, par- of the fig tree that wasn't producing fruit. And the master came out and he said, you know what, I'm going to cut this tree down. It doesn't do me any good. And the servant says, well, let's wait. Let's dig a hole around it, put some manure in it, wait and see if it bears fruit. And the master says, okay, I'll wait. But if I come back next season and there's still no fruit, I'm going to cut this tree down. And Jesus says it's the same thing for people. God expects us to bear fruit, and he's patient with us, and he's merciful with us, and he allows us to, if we're not growing, if we're not bringing others to the kingdom, he gives us some time to be able to try to do that, but eventually the patience runs out. Notice what Jesus says in John 15, 1 through 6, if you would. John 15, 1 through 6, one of the I am statements of Jesus. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser, somebody who takes care of vines, a pruner. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He's speaking to his disciples. 
He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Notice that if we are in Jesus, if we are in the true vine and a branch of that true vine, we can grow because we're tapped into that life force. We're like that tree planted by the streams of water and we're expected to grow and to mature and bring others to him and to bear fruit and to be a blessing to others. And if we're not, Jesus says, we're cut off and we're cast away. But the righteous person, the blessed man, is the one who is like that tree. Thankfully, God is merciful and he's patient And he allows us the time to bear fruit. But if we're not growing, if we're not at least trying to bring others to God's kingdom, we ought to take an inventory of our faith. And maybe there's something we need to get over. Maybe there's a temptation we're falling into. Maybe there's something we need to pray about and to strive to do better. But the righteous person is like a tree that bears fruit. And notice that its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The leaf does not wither. Instead, there is success. The righteous person enjoys a certain level of stability. Because the righteous person is blessed by God, and because he's tapped into the spiritual life-giving power of Jesus, he is spiritually successful. He does not experience ruin and wither and decay from a spiritual sense. Why? Because he's in Christ. He's built his house on the solid foundation. Think about what Jesus says in Luke 6, 47 through 49. The same thing he says really in Matthew 7. Remember about the wise man who builds his house on the rock? But in Luke, in the gospel according to Luke, he says that the wise man goes out to build his house and he digs down to get to the bedrock. He digs through the sand. He does the work that's necessary to get all the sand out of the way so he can get the bedrock. And that's where he builds his house. And the flood rises, the stream breaks loose against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus says, however, but the one who hears and does not do my words is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. You see, if we're going to have stability in our life, come what may, no matter what our job may present itself with, no matter what uh, the condition of our spouse and our relationship with them is, whatever may come up in our life, if we've built our house on obeying the words of Jesus, there's a level of stability there. God promises that. And just like the righteous person's leaf does not wither, the one who builds his house, his, the, life of, the house of his life on doing the words of Jesus will not come to ruin. So you see the righteous man, what does he do? He avoids the activities of sinners. He delights in God's word. He obeys God's word. And because of that, he's like a tree that has an ever-flowing source of life that grows and matures and produces fruit to bless others and whose leaf does not wither. There's stability and there's success in the future. Not because he's earned it, but because the God he serves is that great. There's a contrast here, though, in verse 4. Verse 4 says, starts out, the wicked are not so. We're going to see what the wicked are like here in verse 4. 
The wicked are not so. It's pretty plain. In the first place, the wicked are not like the righteous. It's a very drastic difference. Think about what the psalmist is saying. The righteous, this is what they do, and they're like this, and they don't do this, and they're like this beautiful extended metaphor. What are the wicked like? Well, they're not like that. It's about as big as a contrast as you can get. Whatever the, rich, the righteous are like, whatever blessings they enjoy, the wicked are like and receive the opposite. And here we see the dividing line between the two types of people. And it's clear that in God's eyes there is no overlap. There are the righteous, who are like a tree planted by streams of water, and there are the wicked, who are not so. But notice what they are like. Instead of like a strong, stable tree that produces fruit to bless others, instead they are like chaff. If you think about chaff, it's that inedible, unusable, unhelpful part of the harvest. It's the part that if you go through the problem of collecting it, you would just burn it or throw it away anyway. Unlike the righteous who are strong, who are fruit-producing, the wicked do not help anybody else. They benefit no one. They are good for nothing except for to be tossed out. That's the image that the psalmist is giving. And notice the tree has stability. Its roots are there in that stream of water. Its leaf does not wither. But the righteous who are like chaff, what happens to them? The wind just blows them away. And they're gone. The psalmist here says, Just as one who disobeys Jesus builds his house on the sand, the wicked have no foundation. They're driven by the wind. James 1 in verses 6 through 7 talks about a man who's unstable in all of his ways because when he prays, he doubts. And he ought not to think that he receives anything. And he's like the sea tossed by the wind, unstable, unpredictable. In Jude 12, there is a description of those false teachers, of those people who have subverted and perverted the grace of God. And they're described as waterless clouds driven by the wind. They don't produce what you would expect them to. They don't produce anything good. They have a lot of promises without delivering. And they're unstable. They're driven by the wind. It's the exact opposite of the image of the righteous person. And notice what the wicked do, verse 5, really what they don't do. Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What are the wicked like? What are sinners, I mean, what are the wicked do? What, are they, what, do, what do sinners do? Well, they do not withstand God's judgment. I once was talking to somebody who read this verse, and he thought that, and nothing against him, he thought that what it was saying is, really there's no judgment. As if the wicked aren't going to stand in judgment. They're not going to be judged by God. That's the opposite of what the psalmist is saying. They're saying the judgment upon the wicked is unbearable for them. They can't stand in it. They can't withstand it. And they're unable to come out of the judgment unscathed. In the minor prophet Nahum, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. You see, and without the blessings of God, without seeking God and doing his will, we cannot stand at the judgment. God will judge the world one day. That's guaranteed. Paul would say on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 30 through 31, 
that there's a day on which God is appointed to judge the world. And he's guaranteed it by raising that judge from the dead, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're told we're all going to sit before, stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done, whether good or evil. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, there's a day coming where every knee will bow before Jesus, every tongue will confess, and on that day, the wicked will not be able to stand it. And these same people, they don't reside in the congregation of the righteous. In the same way that the righteous are trying not to get swept up in the activities of sinners, the psalmist says sinners are trying not to get swept up in the activities of the righteous. Maybe we know some people like that. People who are like oil and doing God's will is like water. Who they want to stay as far away from it as they can. But notice the end result, verse 6. He's described to us what the righteous do, what the righteous are like, what the wicked are like, what the wicked do, and the end result in verse 6. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, the way of the righteous, sorry, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the end result. And you have, again, a contrast here. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And what this is saying is more than just God sees the steps righteous people are going to take. It's more than just God can see into the future and knows what is going to happen. It's more than that. Literally, this phrase translated here as knows the way means to guard the way. The Lord guards the way of the righteous, and the Lord rewards those who are righteous. And that means that the righteous do not need to feel insecure. They do not need to feel afraid. They know that the Lord is looking out for them. They know that the Lord is protecting their future. But the path of those who reject God ultimately leads to destruction. It's the opposite. God looks out for the path, protects the path of the righteous, but notice the path of the wicked. It will perish. It leads to destruction. Unlike the path the Lord protects, this is a path that leads to ruin. The Proverbs tells us, the Proverbs writer tells us, that the way of the transgressor is hard. It leads ultimately to destruction. Paul visions those who will be punished with eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 These are those who do not know God, who reject the truth of God, rather, and do not obey the gospel. Paul envisions in Philippians 3.19 those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We see here, and a lot of different other places in the Bible, that there are two types of people. There are those on the path that the Lord protects and looks out for. And there are those on the path that leads to destruction and nothing good. And while generally we speak in generalizations about there being two types of people, it is true that in the eyes of God, there are only two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. We might say, well, I know some people and they're not Christians, but they're not wicked. They're not bad people. Maybe not from our perspective, but they have sinned against an eternal God. And for that, there is an eternal consequence. 
And they might be successful here temporarily, but there is a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness. The good news is about all of this is that though there may be two types of people, we get to choose which type of person we are. And more than that, if we'll orient ourselves towards God, if we'll seek to be that blessed man or woman that we read about here in Psalm 1, 1 through 3, God will help us along the way. By his mercy, by his grace, by his strength, and by his love, we can be the person he wants us to be. But it starts by coming to him in faith and repenting of our sins, repenting of that wicked way that leads to destruction, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and God and being immersed with him in baptism. And the result is we're put on that path. God plants us as a tree by those streams of living water. If you've yet to do that, if you're not a righteous person in the eyes of God, today's the day to change that. And it's not something you can earn. It's not something, well, if you jump through enough hoops and do enough things, then you'll be righteous in the eyes of God. You have to rely on the mercy and grace of God. And he's provided us a way through his son to be a righteous person. But it doesn't stop there. You've got to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. You have to not Walk in the counsel of the wicked. You have to not stand in the way of sinners. You have to not sit in the seat of scoffers. You have to delight in his word. You have to meditate on it day and night and allow it to influence and affect and filter all of your decisions. Maybe you've started that path as a righteous person, as a blessed person, but you've gone off course. Today is the day to fix that, to come confessing to God, and he'll put you back on the right path. Maybe you've never been planted by God, by those streams of waters. Maybe you're like chaff, just blowing in the wind, and you feel directionless. God wants to help you. And if you come to him on his terms, he will save you. He will make you righteous, and you will be blessed. If you have a need to come forward, please do so while we sing this song.